Jay, it's great to meet you, man. I'm Clark, uh, one of the hosts here, and we got Russell, uh, the other. We're in the same room together, and then we got Randy, uh, who's our engineer over there in Atlanta. Okay, cool. Nice to meet you all. And then uh, Russ and I are up here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Okay, awesome. Where, where are yeah, you at, Jay? I'm in Alabama, North Alabama, close to Huntsville. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hunt- oh, Space Town. Yep, yep. Space and Rocket Center. Good deal. Yeah, I'm originally from uh, Mississippi, so uh, I'm excited to talk to you about all things uh, Alabama <laughs> and football and uh, and the combination of hearts. So Russell is is from California, mm-hmm. and uh, I have done and and Russell and I we've known each other close to ten years. Randy too, we've all known each other almost ten years now, and I've done my best to try to expand his worldview as he is just a very sheltered Californian who is a coastal elite mm-hmm. who looks down on our flyover states. Yeah. So it has been my life mission to help educate him, and I think I've done a pretty good job, and you have evolved as a human being. Yeah. So I want to congratulate you on your efforts. Thank you. And I think that you kind of <laughs> understood, um, you know, sort of w- what Jay was trying to say in these movies, and uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, I saw a sparkle in your eye when you started talking about it. That's true. All correct. Yeah. Yeah. There's something nice. about um, the holiday and like, you know, <laughs> when you set a movie in fall and the trees actually change color, that can do a lot for the aesthetic of a film. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's that's one of my <laughs> my biggest issues with, I mean, mainly the, the Halloween franchise. It's like, how hard is it to shoot one of these movies in the fall. It happens very rarely <laughs> that they actually do that. Yeah, is the fo- and you know, when you when you center a, f- a movie around football, it has to be in the fall. And uh Jay knows that. Now what was that what was that film? Was it through Vinegar Syndrome we watched? Wildcats? Is that oh, no dude. no not Wildcats, that's Goldie Hawn. What was the name I'm, of I'm it? I'm gonna look it up. I can't pull the JD, down. you know what we're talking about? It's it's one of the I few don't. other f- uh football centered horror films but it's but it's uh, juxtaposed, um, Wolfpack. Wolfpack. That's it. Yeah. Uh, juxtaposed cool, cool. with like Nazi Germany. Oh so wow! That's yeah, it is. That's a combination. Had, the director had zero understanding of how football worked, and uh, it it only added to the film in its own way. Well, hold on. Now everybody might be confused while you're talking about football, like I was. And Jay, I'm going to be completely honest with you. And I apologize in advance. But when Clark came down, first off, Clark isn't a huge slasher fan. That's correct. And I am. And when he came down, again, we do live in the same house. When he came downstairs and I was in the theater and he's like, hey, our buddy, uh, Robbie Smith, uh, director, musician, um, he's got good taste. Although it does get a little iffy with like horror. Sometimes he likes (laughs) shit a lot. Like he drove. I I, I know I'm on a tangent already. He drove to fucking. He drove to a state where the trees change color to watch Halloween 2018. There you go, sir. That's how much... Okay. He gets it. So he had recommended to Clark a slasher movie and said, hey, this might be perfect for you. And Clark came downstairs and said, hey, I got a slasher movie for us to watch. And I said, okay, cool. And then he told me the title. And I went, are you fucking kidding me, man? (laughs) I'm like, dude, you know what I don't like? I don't like when people take a subgenre and then make a movie that's a parody of it. And I, I... Probably started lecturing him the same way. You also have a bad history of October in the title. Oh, House that's of, true. Houses that October built. 
You got another one? Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's October <laughs> Sky. <laughs> so when he came down, I'm like, dude, you're going to make me watch a dumb fucking fart dick comedy that is like the whole premise is making fun of a genre I like. I'm like, of course you would do that. Yes. And I then would. he told me, oh, Robbie recommended it. And and I, I pointed to the title. I'm like, dude, we're doing part five. What the fuck? <laughs> and, and well, he mentioned that the third um, Saturday in October is actually a football reference. Yes. Yeah. And that piqued my, I'm like, what does that mean? Because I don't know if you knew, but I was born to play in the NFL. And junior year of high school, I decided I'm going to pick up guitar instead. And I gave up the dream. And it's a, uh, it's a wise transition. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I like literally I didn't watch film until then. And then I kind of pivoted and I completely turned my back on football. Actually, it's after Kaepernick cost us the one record I was paying attention to with the 49ers. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I was intrigued enough. So that's why we're talking about football off the bat. And we should always talk about football. It's very important. All right. Well, let me let me let me throw in a question here for you, Jay. Did you intend this movie to be an homage or a parody to slasher film? I kind of looked at it as we were making a love letter to the genre. And my weird sensibilities were kind of at the forefront of that. I grew up loving, you know, Halloween 4 and 5 and some of the later sequels to the, the big slasher franchises of the 80s. Uh, Friday the 13th, obviously, being a, a huge influence as well. And we were also in a position where we didn't have a lot of money. We've been trying to get a much bigger project off the ground. It was more like an art house slasher film. And we had kind of built our team around that and ultimately kind of circled fall 2019 as we're making a movie no matter what. And we kind of had to pivot away from that project into something else. And I always wanted to have a lost slasher series that I created so that we can now, kind of make can these stop period you piece. Now, yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard you mention this on another podcast and I'm dying to know, like what was the art house one? And again, if that's a project on hold or you don't want to get into it, that's fine. But I'm curious, yeah. like aesthetically, like, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think the easiest way to sum it up was like the, the bones of the suburban slasher with Halloween being a huge influence mixed with something like Gus Van Zandt's Elephant. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it was completely Randy's different in, in style and in tone, for sure. Yeah, um, that's, that's about all I can say about it this time, because it is something that I, it's on the back burner right now, but, you know, I've wanted to make it for so long, and it's evolved. It started out much more as, like, just a straightforward love letter to Halloween when I was, like, in my early 20s. And over time, it's evolved more into what it's become, but I think it needs one more evolution before it's truly ready to be made. So I'm glad that we haven't made it yet. And pivoting to third Saturday just allowed us to make something that was a lot more fun and accessible uh, from the standpoint of making a movie. You know, we had very limited resources when we hit the ground running with part five. So yeah, there's, there's some satire and parody in there, but for me, I love these movies and I love, quote unquote, bad movies. So it was just leaning into that and knowing that whatever we make due to the limitations that we have, there are going to be some warts on it. And we want those to just be part of the charm of the movie. Now, I've, I love everything you're saying here. And I think I need to explain myself and why um, the title threw me off. Again, I'm somebody who didn't want to watch Butt Boy. And very different you're title. Welcome. Butt Boy's fantastic, too. Here's the thing. They, 
they told they were tra- they were articulating that they were self-aware to me. And when you come in self-aware, I usually see that as like a creative kind of creating a shield. Like if you don't like what I'm doing, it's just a joke. It didn't matter anyway. And mm. I have to say that the third Saturday in October part five, I think is incredible. I rewatched it again. I, me and Clark can't remember when we first watched it. I thought it was Chattanooga. You're saying Fantastic Fest. Yeah, I right? think I, yeah, Fantastic Fest. And um, honestly, I think I, I actually felt a little bit nostalgic when I jumped back into it just now. Like nice. it's something, dude, it really, um, it hung with me. And I, I've been trying to pinpoint why, but I do think you got something there. You, you are like, now I took a note down in, uh, in one of your films. We do have somebody mention the Oedipus complex. Then there's a Fellini reference followed by nudity that is used as utility, not for titillation. And then we have a Fulshi style kill. And I'm like, this dude's got a bag of tricks. That's four out of five on the Randy scale. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how Randy does with any nudity, even if it is utility. Util- I think Randy's down for utility nudity. Randy, can you confirm? Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, Fellini definitely was. <laughs> and that's why I was thinking about it. Because in that Truffaut Fellini book, one of my favorite parts is when he's telling Hitchcock, there should have been nudity in Psycho. And it's funny, again, Jay, I heard you on a podcast and somebody was framing this as kind of you uh, were retaking the slasher genre and you were moving all the problematic shit in there. And I'm like, that's not what was happening. We're just in a new era where nudity won't sell a ticket. Like the Internet Mm -hmm. has got that already. Yeah. But you still need it. And when you used it, I don't know. I know I'm rambling again. I didn't mean to. But, Jay, I really liked your movie. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, Clark was giving me a look. I'm like, I need it out. No, it's all good. I think that, you know, we definitely leaned into all the stereotypical stuff that you would expect from a movie like this and tried to, you know, honor. It, it was it was weird because we really did limit ourselves in a lot of ways to what would happen in a movie from this time period. Now there are exceptions and things that we obviously expanded upon or just kind of took it and ran with it. But for the most part, we tried to look at these as being as authentic to the time periods that they were made in as we could, at least as our like jumping off point. Okay. Well, you nailed it. Aesthetically. I think that's the hardest thing too. So when you said you wanted to make an art house film, I was thinking along the lines of like house of the devil. Because now I'm not sure, but when you're making a movie like this, do you cast people with a look? Because I remember Ty West talking about casting for a particular feminine face that you would see in a 70s film. And when you had Mm -hmm. uh, Kansas Bowling in your first movie, I'm like, I wonder if you're doing that too. Is that something that crossed your mind? It crossed our minds more on part one. That's one thing I love about Darius Willis, who plays Ricky Dean, and Kate Edmonds, who plays... Denver, really there are quite a few of them. I would say Allison Shrum, who plays Heather Hill, the final girl in part one. They all just kind of had that vibe to them that felt like they authentically fell into the world. And also just the way Darius talks, just his style and his personality felt really on point to, to what we were trying to do. Part five was, I'll be honest, there wasn't time for a lot of thought to go into it. It was, we're pivoting into this new thing and we're going to make this movie 
very quickly. I mean, I wrote the script very quickly and we started shooting it basically a month later, kind of out of necessity. I had some ideas for what it would be for years, but like actually sitting down and hammering out that script was, uh, it was all very rapid fire. Yeah. You can tell because in the, in your new movie, which is the original film in your world, I know mm. that can get a little confusing. The aesthetic dude, you fucking nailed it, man. And I, now, okay, you're wearing a shirt that is kind of um, a similar aesthetic. It's playing off the, like, 50s Halloween decoration. Um, it's a ghost that, you know, if you're a Bay Area podcast fan, you might be familiar with uh, Forever Midnight. They use that aesthetic a lot. Now, you had a lot of Halloween decorations in your movie. Were those authentic, or were you buying them, like, off Instagram, like we talked about before we started recording? Those, especially in part one, those are authentic 60s or 70s Halloween decorations. I believe the company that we got most of them through is Bastille. Um, they did a lot of stuff like that back in the 60s and 70s. And our producer, Frank Krauss, who's also one half of the production designer on each film, is an antiques dealer. So we really leaned heavily into him, especially that mid-century modern stuff that he really thrives in. That's kind of his wheelhouse. So he's one of the reasons that the movies got made from a financial standpoint, like finding the money, but also saving us a lot of money from a production design standpoint, because he goes to estate sales, he has stuff in storage, he has stuff in his store. So we were just kind of going to Frank stuff and picking through and saying, okay, this works and this works. All right. You want to talk football? You know what? Yeah. I know you do. <laughs> I have other questions as well. But all right, so let's talk about this. So uh, again, um, the the interesting thread here is, you know, obviously, well, Russell, did you understand that in, in the 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 importance of these restaurants in both of these <laughs> movies? That sort of that, you know, we've got the catfish cabin mm -hmm. and we've got Bronco Burger. Yeah. And that, you know, both of these in their own right kind of serve as these sort of cultural hubs, you know, in, in these universes. And so like, for example, and I want to tell you that that is 100% accurate. And also the alliteration, I also appreciated. <laughs> there was a restaurant uh, not, not too far from where I grew up called the Country Kitchen. But country was spelled with a K oh. and yep. a U. <laughs> I think every small town in the South has a country kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> a country kitchen with a K. Never forget it. They were shut down. Health department. Oh, I'm really glad so, they didn't have um, a third word to that title. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> country kitchen company. Oh, boy. Yeah, that that's... Uh, that's a, a dangerous, a dangerous place. Um, Bronco Burger is my favorite of the two in our movies. Catfish Cabin is a real place. So oh. the interior we used in the film oh, is wow. actually a barbecue restaurant down the street. But the exterior for Catfish Cabin is the real Catfish Cabin in Athens, Alabama. And um, it actually used to be called Catfish Cabin 2, Roman numerals. Um, I don't know where the uh, original one was located, but uh, yeah, I'd seen Catfish Cabin all my life. I'd never really spent any time there, but it, it's a staple of North Alabama. And then Bronco Burger, we completely built from the ground up. It was an empty building that was green on the inside when we got there. So I prefer it just from that standpoint because of all the design that went into it. And I'm yeah, talk really about that a little bit. 
because you had paintings in there of, of fictitious football coaches. So yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah. How did, how did y'all accomplish that? Um, it was just a lot of hard work from our art department. We got really lucky. The guy that owned the building um, basically had a warehouse in the building next door, which you see in some of the wide shots there. And he had a lot of the stuff that we used in there for the set dressing. And he also had the police car, that 60s or 50s cop car that looks like it's off the Andy Griffith show, was literally parked in the warehouse next to Bronco Burger. So when we met this man, George Hill, and he was willing to work with us, it was like, okay, we got our location. We're going to build the restaurant in here. And we also have the cop car. And he he had coffins. I mean, this guy had literally (laughs) everything that we could want. Um, And then it was just a matter of like having enough resources from a financial standpoint to do all the painting and um, two of my friends, Erica Lane and Jeff Chandler, really took the lead on the murals. Um, the the guy that plays Heather's boss in that first Bronco Burger scene when Heather goes to work is the man that we used for the Bronco Burger mural. And um, yeah, it was just a, a lot of work. We built that bar. The art department built that bar and we painted everything. And it was a tremendous amount of effort went into making that place. It was great. I loved. I loved all the the cinder block walls. You know, I can't tell you how many cinder block wall you know huts you'll walk into that you know try to pass off as diners. That's yeah. great, dude. You know, you start with part five and with slasher trajectory. They have the problem of usually the money is starting to dwindle when you get up into those numbers, but the demand is high, so you have to keep upping the ante with less money. And it's funny how how well Bronco Burger worked because we go back to the original here, even though we know it's, you know, chronologically it's part two. And it really feels like it was the first one, like you had money in there. And I was shocked. Like, hey, dude, how, how much did it cost to like put that together? Because, you know, we watch a lot of indie horror and I like just the way the walls were painted. I'm like, whoa, like somebody must have come in and given you some money. Yeah, we had a little bit more money to make part one. And part five, we kind of piecemealed it together. Like we had a very small amount when we started and just to survive the shoot, you know, we kind of shot through November 2019, knowing that we have such an ambitious schedule. I mean, there were so many days where when we looked at the schedule in pre-production, it's like, okay, this is completely unrealistic that we're going to shoot all these scenes in one day and all the company moves that we had on the schedule. So we just kept finding more money and then, both movies were also shot over two phases of principle. So we would shoot for like a couple of weeks in the fall and then we would come back the next winter or that the, the, in the winter, like two months later and, and finish the movies. And we ended up using that through both films. So we just had a little bit more money at once on part one. So we were able to use it in a, in a better way. Like we had a better plan for what we were doing um, top to bottom on part one than we did on part five. Now, when you're when you're raising money for part one, what is that pitch like? Are you telling people, hey, we're making a horror movie? Or are you like, hey, we made a horror movie and we didn't really have a plan, but it was part five of a franchise. And now we're going back and we're trying to do part one. And the aesthetics is like a traditional 70s thing. It's not really a parody. We're trying to like pay homage, but we're also having a little bit of fun. And do people understand that? Yeah, we got really lucky with Frank and the people that he had, um, the resources that he had for part five from a money standpoint. 
ended up being some of the same people that we used on part one. So we could show them part five and kind of walk them through what we were doing. And that helped a lot, just keeping it, you know, in, in the same people's hands and they trusted us and trusted Frank. So we were very lucky that it worked out the way it did, especially because we were making part one really at the height of COVID at that time, which was a, a whole other layer uh, that we'd never had to deal with, you know, in making a movie. Now, Jay, was the plan always to release one and five together? That developed once we had part five in post and the opportunity was there to make another movie. And I had always envisioned, you know, for over a decade, having a lost slasher series. So you could have these period piece movies that you could go back and, you know, do some something really um, heavily influenced by the 70s, then have a few in the 80s and then move into the 90s. So um, the idea that they were going to be released at the same time as a double feature really became concrete once we had both movies at po in post at the same time. And we started thinking about well, what does that look like if we release them both at the same time? And we did make part five first, and that seemed like a good in sort of um, it, it was like the best play that we had available to generate excitement about it was to just bring them both out at the same time and try to lead with part five. Um, and we were very thankful that festivals went with that because we had no clue if people were going to respond to it at all. You know, it, it's, it's hard enough to get one feature into a festival, much less two at the same time. So we were very happy with the way it played out. Yeah. That was smart. Did you listen to that, Russell? That was fucking smart. That's a smart move. <laughs> Which part? The How they packaged all it together. Now. Okay. We deal a lot with um, what we call in-world camera cinema. It's found footage horror. And I've been thinking a lot if third Saturday in October would count as an in-world camera film. And I know traditionally and as far as tropes go, it wouldn't. But mm -hmm. we are kind of embarking in a alternate reality here where they're like, you don't give us any context why this franchise went away. But I feel like you could release a faux documentary that covers like controversy around the film where like maybe yeah. an actor had really died or like the director turned out to have like poor political standing yeah. and like, you know, there's true crime wrapped in here. The world is completely unknown in horror franchise. It's, it's you know, yeah. whatever. Or maybe somebody really died on set or like, you know, there's a lot of potential there. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And with part five, you gave us that Star Wars, like, backstory crawl. Yeah. But in the first one, I felt like we didn't get any more, like, me, of course. I'm hoping that we can uncover the story of why this movie went away. And right. have, you, have you thought about that at all? So you want the Antrim yeah. side of things? Kind of. And I was thinking Antrim, because we show, okay, so we do a film fest called the um, Unnamed Footage Festival, and we do all... Originally, the, the pitch was, it's, they're all movies like Blair Witch. But then, mm -hmm. of course, you got to add Spinal Tap. Then you got to add, like, a Hardcore Henry. And then their Antrim came out. Do you know the movie Antrim? Mm -hmm. So Antrim kind of had a... Uh, it built its own lore it's, about the deadliest movie ever made. There's a, a film that Film Fest were showing, only three of them. And when they showed them, bad things happened like fires. And the film kind of has a faux doc um, book ending. So it starts, they show the movie, and then we have a little outro. And I feel like you're in the same genre as that. So, yeah, have you thought about the world that um, your films exist in? Yeah, so we have a fake 
um, fan site that we just put out. It's an Angel Fire website that has backstory on, or it's, it's got a synopsis of all of the third Saturday movies and a little bit more information on all of that stuff. We, we built some materials like that, and we're slowly rolling those out and developing more. The Blu-ray release is going to have a lost interview with Frank Kraft playing Thank you. A, yeah. um, uh, a very different version of himself talking about, you know, how they started part one and kind of what his career was in film, but he's, he's doing like a Robert Evans thing in the interview. So, so that's pretty fun. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I made a movie that trauma release called the nobodies that is about a shot on video nineties, um, exploitation film that was made in small town, Alabama, and is completely terrible. Like one of the worst movies you could ever watch. And it has a faux documentary built into it about how the two filmmakers uh, facing rejection from their small southern town ended up committing suicide. So it's their full movie, their really bad exploitation SOV movie with this faux documentary about the filmmakers who made it and kind of what happened to them after it came out. So I love stuff like that, um, but I purposely didn't want to dive too far in that direction because it felt so familiar to, to what I'd already done with the nobodies. But we do see like the world building elements um, for just creating the experience of watching Third Saturday in October as something that we want to continue to expand upon. And hopefully we'll be able to make at least one or two more of these and we can build more stuff around that from a marketing standpoint, just kind of the lost nature of, of the franchise. I also made a lost Halloween trailer for a uh, lost installment of Halloween 3 that was meant to rectify season of the witch that never got released and we you know i love building that type of lore so we did that back in like 2012 i think it hit like bloody disgusting and stuff in 2013 and we actually reused some of that footage in the recap in part five because we needed you know some of these missing sequels so we shot some stuff with our killer in the mask but i also repurposed some of that footage into part five now, I'm sorry, really quick. Uh, whenever I reveal my computer screen to either Randy, Clark, Oksana, one of our producers who's not here, they always are brutal. They always make fun of me for having so many tabs open. I've rectified that. I got it down to none. But they would always be movies that I would want to watch or that it would be like an Amazon um, order that I'd never put through and I'm waiting to. I'm I got 16 young. tabs open right now. <laughs> my man, me and Jay, dude. So my one tab, I have one tab left open, and it's an Amazon order for the Nobody's DVD. I now, again, we've been I've been programming found footage movies for six years now at a fest, and every time people will come out and be like, "Hey, have you seen the movie?" and they always they like to like rib me about it. Yours is the most recent with Nobody's, and uh, it's been pitched to me three times. I'm dying to watch it, and then we sat down here today, and Clark reminded me about it. I'm like, God, what a missed opportunity. But that's what we do here, Jay, at the <laughs> Overlook Hour. Here's the thing. I think your movie fucking works because you're paying attention to that meta narrative here. And it really captured me because of that. And I kept I know you had a question. Do you want to jump in there before I start ranting off? Oh, yes. Yeah, Scott. Okay, I'm sorry. We're gonna, I'm going to take you in a different direction. Okay. Jay, I have a question. Yes. Russell, you're going to hate this question. Oh, that's fine. How did you build your boogeyman? Okay. <laughs> Actually, All right, I had a similar so, question. Yeah. Yeah. 
the suit was really kind of the big thing to figure out because it needed to feel familiar, but not too much like Jason or too much like Michael too iconic. And, and to be honest, the mask was originally supposed to be um, more of like a retro vampire mask. And we didn't get it ready until the first day of the shoot. And we put it on the actor and it looked fucking ridiculous. Like it did not fit his face. And I just happened to have that skull mask that we had made for another project, like a proof of concept thing that we never really got off the ground like five years before that. And uh, so on day one, we had to send Frank on a, a mission to, to get that mask because it got it included in a box of like props that we had in a different location. Um, so the mask was kind of accidental, but I found that a year later in my notes that I've written in 2018 that I intended to use the skull mask for third Saturday in October. But when I actually sat down and wrote part five, we went, we were going in a different direction with the mask and the suit was, yeah, just kind of like, uh, you know, there was some tall man influence there. Um, a lot of people, uh, bring up the burning and, and that was fine. Uh, because, you know, I just, he couldn't be wearing overalls. Um, that was, that was clear. And the hearse was part of the lore of his backstory in five when I wrote the script, simply because I knew we had a hearse that we could get from this guy, Trent Thompson, who had um, been a yeah. part of the, the local North Alabama film scene. Um, but then when we called him, he was like, the hearse is unavailable during your shoot. So we had to go, we had to go find it. It's occupied. <laughs> We had to find a 90s hearse for part five. And then thankfully, when we made part one, that is Trent's hearse, the one that I wrote part five uh, based around. So it, it worked yeah. out because that we would have never found a better hearse for part one than, than the one we used. Jay, quick side story. I learned how to drive a car in a hearse. <laughs> That's incredible. So I have a soft spot. Was, it, was it your dad's? Yeah. For the mortuary? Yeah. Wow. Definitely don't think we should have been doing that. <laughs> how, how was that experience? It was fun because uh, the engine shuts off when you hit 95 miles an hour. In, <laughs> in that version, in the Cadillac hearse. Why? I, I, it had a governor on it. There's something is going wrong. No, it just it, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it had a governor on it. And it was no reason that this hearse yeah, And then you go back. Where did you learn to drive? Like just an open property or like? Yeah, because then my first job was working at the funeral home. In a graveyard? So you were- And so, uh, and and at that time it was just my dad and myself and I was, uh, I, he had to drive the lead car and I had to drive the hearse. Oh man. I'm 15, 16. <laughs> yeah. And yet you turned out so lame. <laughs> you, sure. you should be more interesting. Sure. Wait, hold on. Now to go back to the slasher, one thing that I kept thinking about while watching your film was that part five first, why part five? But then I'm like, dude, this is a nightmare because now if you're kind of figuring out the film on location, you're creating a bunch of parameters that you're going to have to operate in if you ever go back. And one of mm -hmm. them was the look of the slasher because, you know, again, I mentioned, I love slasher movies and I'm sure you've done it, Jay where you sit around and you try to, I mean, you've literally done it. Imagine a slasher and it's like, what would be their unique weapon? What would their look be like? What's their backstory? And I kept thinking, man, it looks like they kind of just picked, like I thought maybe the suit was a homage to um, Night of the Living Dead. 
and kind of you have like a little bit of subtext of like racial tension. But I think that might be me projecting too, because whatever I hear about like Alabama or like the South, it's like, well, you know, there's a lot more uh, black people living down here. So the culture just it kind of mm-hmm. looks mixed anyway, yeah. where, you know, out yeah. here on the coast, you're like, oh, dude, the, he's making a statement. Yeah. And you're like, no, yeah. that's it, how it looks in the it? country. This is how not by design it was. When we started shooting part five, we built it with the idea that, you know, the killer's going to wear long sleeves and gloves and there's going to be a hood on this mask. So we don't have to worry about who's inside that costume on a day to day basis. You know, it's like back to the old school original Halloween where, you know, they had multiple people standing in as Michael Myers on on numerous occasions just because of the nature of the budget. So one of my oldest friends from junior high, Andrew Wasserberger, was the original actor who played Harding through that initial uh, shoot. He volunteered the suits, and then we went thrifting and built more versions of the suit around it so we could have bloody versions of it and stuff like that. But uh, we did look at a couple of actors through a local casting call, and one of them ended up being Antonio Woodruff. And halfway through the shoot, when we had that break, Andrew's wife had their first child and he was no longer available. So Antonio Woodruff, who becomes Harding in part five and then plays him in part one, really got the role because he fit Andrew's suit size and he was a nice guy (laughs) and he had a good walk. You know, like that's really it. And he was so great when he came in, it was like replacing an old friend with someone who quickly became someone who felt like an old friend. And we really wanted to uh, reward him for playing a role where really, you know, as an actor, he's in a mask the entire time. You don't even know if I, you know, said which one of these actors is playing Harding in this scene. No one would know who's behind the mask. So we wanted to reward him. And that was also part of the design of thinking about like, okay, we've established this slasher killer in part five. He wears this suit. He drives a hearse. This is his mask. But let's remove the mask from the equation in part one so that it stands on its own a little bit more and we can get creative with the look of it and, and having Harding's, you know, eye blown out during the execution and all that. But mainly it was just to reward Antonio and let him have an opportunity to, to perform a little bit. Yeah. It's funny. Like, you know, Clark opened up this episode talking about like teaching me about uh, culture because I am a West coast elite, but it really does. Like we internalize something weird. Where you watch you watch a uh, part one, the new film, and you feel like you want to pat yourself on the back, be like, "Look at what we did! This is a very diverse movie." And then you know you meet somebody like Clark, and you're like, "No, you fucking idiot! That's how the rest of the country looks. It's just out yeah. here. It's not even like, dude, the Bay Area is very diverse too. Like, but yet it's still there in film. And I don't know. I still feel weird that you want to like pat yourself on the back for it. It's strange, but. Again, you're right. The problem about being behind a mask is one that pro wrestling has exploited forever. Like if you ever go and look up like Doink and Dink, like the clown, it's like, dude, they were 18 different people. And there's really no longevity there. If that's- Gallagher was two different people and he wasn't even wearing a mask. Dude, it's a problem. They'll just recast you. Yeah. And um, <coughs> how lucky, dude, because in part one, he's got a fucking face on him. And I mentioned Fulshi later on, but when he starts looking deteriorated and like corpse-like, he really he's got some zombie two vibes there in that makeup you gave him. Yeah, for sure. And that's something we really talked a lot about was the progression of, you know, 
immediately after the execution by how he's going to transform to what he looks like by the end of the film and just making it look more and more decrepit as the film went along. Yeah. I, you know, I hadn't watched uh, your new film, the original in the franchise until uh, preparing for this interview. And one of the things I was really looking forward to was the lore behind the selection of the mask. And honestly, um, I don't want to ruin anything, but when it happens, it's so unceremonious that it felt completely authentic to me. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, God damn it. You did it. Perfect. And I came in here like a lame horror fan going, what's he like? How's he going to get it? Yeah. Like, how's he going to don it? And then it just happened in such a way where you're like, that's dude, you, you nailed it. And, I don't, do you get any blowback from people? Like, does anybody want to critique your construction of like a uh, lost classic slasher? I'm sure that they do. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that they do. Um, you know, we've been very happy with the response we've received so far. And we did mostly virtual fest and it got us like an immediate reaction. Like out of Chattanooga, we had no idea what to expect because we'd never done a virtual fest before, but we premiered at Chattanooga completely virtually. And just the number of letterbox reviews that came in that first weekend kind of blew our minds. And for the most part, people have been very kind and accepting about what, what we've wanted to do. So we feel very fortunate in that sense. Cause I, I like talking about how he finds the mask that just seemed like the most natural way to do it. It, it kind of, uh, seems overstated to me, like it, the the importance that they put on the mask and some of the, you know, like even the Friday the 13th remake, um, just like, or Rob Zombie's Halloween that it's buried under the, the house and the floorboards. It, there's this importance put on it, but to me it just seemed like the most natural thing is that just like somebody happens to have this mask and he happens to find it and put it on and that's how it happens. Yeah, in the... Uh the remake of Friday the 13th, it's kind of like you're paying attention to craft and it took me a little bit to appreciate that movie, but fuck, did they really cram one through three into one film and you kind of get all of that backstory in like the first 20 minutes. And you also get mm-hmm. the subplot where Jason is putting up treasure maps to his weed farm on the internet to get Hell kids out there, yeah. which, you know, when you frame it that way, that's a fun movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Me and Randy's in on that one. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, Jay, where did you find the the location, that house in uh, the new film, in the original? In part one, Dieter's house. Yeah. Um, that took some work. We were really struggling to find something that suited the needs of the script. And I, for some reason, was really focused on Uncle Dieter living in the most like dilapidated house that we could find. Like almost he, his house should feel like they live in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house or like some haunted house. So when Heather Hill shows up there, you know, like you're almost more scared for that. She's going to hang out with these people in this house. Like they may be more dangerous than Artie (laughs) is. Um, So we went to Cortland, Alabama, a very, very small little community. And we were looking at a house that was literally falling in on itself. And I think that was kind of a moment where I thought to myself, this is fucking insane. Like you can't do this. Like it's dangerous. These houses you're looking at are dangerous, but being in Cortland, our location manager, Chris Olney is just very good at his job. And 
when we were in Cortland, we scouted, you know, the downtown area. We knocked on a few doors and had some conversations with neighbors. And someone suggested we get in touch with this couple, the Mancusos there in Cortland. And um, we got in touch with them and they had Dieter's house and they were kind enough to let us shoot there. Um, in the original script, Denver, the basement is not in the script. It's like an attic. And obviously when we found that house and it had that basement, it was like, well, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah. No, there's no way this isn't the location. But uh, it was like we were getting really close to the shoot and we still didn't have that location. So it, it just happened to fall in, into place at the last minute. And it was perfect. Like that house is one of my favorite things about both movies. And it just it works with, uh, with Uncle Dieter's whole vibe. You know what I yeah. mean? It's yeah. just, it was just a perfect marriage. And, uh, yeah. right. well, we're talking about Dieter. I have a, a question for Clark. <laughs> Talk about now, Jay, you sit this one out. Jay, you, you sit down for this one. Clark, gotcha. who, who's the better old character? We got coach Amos or uncle Dieter. Well, we get, we get more, more, more Dieter. I'm going to say, if you're going to compare that, I, we would compare Dieter and Neil in part five. Ah, <sighs> The referee. And if you don't agree, that's a 15-yard penalty. I know. You're right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, okay. I watched which, the film, guys. Which one's better? Which one? Which one do you like more? The coach or the uncle? The uncle. The uncle had the cape. The uncle <laughs> the had cape. the cape. But, the, man. And he fucks. Or tried to. And Reluctantly. It <laughs> <laughs> was a small window. Now, Okay. It's it's funny. I came into this worried that you were going to make a parody making fun of something that I love way too much. Because you default to defense. <laughs> That's true. A, str- a good defense is uh, as good as an offense. Is that a football thing? Defense, okay. defense wins championships. That's true. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Your humor is endearing, dude. In the first movie in part five, your opening kill, that couple, man, you really – you you did the tightrope walk of comedy and horror. Now, when um, the, the boyfriend in this relationship is uh, dying. Yeah, that's me, by his... the way. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. shit. Your commitment to um, the estranged or, the, you know, the, the hidden lover having committed this act of violence to get you out of the picture. It's something I wasn't prepared for. I'm like, one, I don't want him to die. Because I, I don't know this relationship that I barely know anything about. I really wanted to work. And I think that's a testament to your directing and writing. But also, the, I wasn't ready for the humor. Where he, and then when your girlfriend gets it with the knife in the head, <laughs> I mean, I felt bad. Which is not normal <laughs> for a comedy horror. And that's I'm just, awesome. I, well, here's the thing. Like, how do you write? comedy like that like were you ever worried of being too jokey at any point or were you like nobody's ever gonna buy this as a slasher like a horror film so we got to be funny like what what was your approach yeah so for me it was just what speaks to me the most i just gravitate towards the kind of weird absurd stuff even when we went back in may part one we were approaching it more like a straightforward 70s horror movie and there was a lot of thought going into it of okay if we're going with this whole lost series angle that we're going to play this movie needs to justify why they continued making them so there was a lot more pressure on us but then my sensibilities just um 
take it into the weird with the meowing and the more comedic aspects. It's just kind of in my nature. I can't get out of my own way sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes you just get lucky, like the house thing. Like if all of my ideas actually successfully work, the movies would probably be worse because of <laughs> for it. Um, like that house idea was arguably terrible. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of naturally how, how I look at what I enjoy. Like I love the return of the living dead movies, especially that first one. And to me, that movie just has some, some really great humor. Like when they, when they're trying to get that, um, canister open and it's spraying in their faces, you know, like to me, that's like cinematic gold. Yeah. That's an interesting one too, because you know, the, the writers of, of uh, Return of the Living Dead are so close to Night of the Living Dead that it's almost like insider comedy. Like they're not making, they're making fun of it, but in a way that doesn't feel, I don't know, destructive. Like it doesn't feel like an, like um, parody films, like um, scary movie. Those feel like mm-hmm. it's kind of a little bit malicious, even though I love them. Where yours felt, I don't know, there's like a warm embrace with your comedy here. Like you're never... The, the butt of the joke is never the genre of movie we're watching. Yeah. I mean, I just love, I mean, Friday the 13th, six is a big influence, especially on part five as well. And that movie has some humorous elements to it and was much more self-aware than the other films. But I, I never felt like, you know, it was um, making fun of the genre or anything like that. One thing that I would say, like in some of the reviews, people, um, treat them like they're parodies or knock them for being parodies. But to me, my personal opinion of what we were trying to do is just make a love letter to these movies and have fun leaning into the absurdity um, that naturally comes out of it. And that was all that comes out of them. And that was kind of a saving grace for part one with the low budget nature and the seventies films that were references, you know, we couldn't look at it as like, we're going to make John Carpenter's Halloween in, you know, 2021 because um, those were kind of the parameters of like it needs to feel authentic from that time period. So it's just about leaning into the cheapness of the experience and having fun with that while still taking it seriously. Like we were always trying to make the best movie that we could every day. Man, I really want to go on a tangent and make you rank the Friday the 13th franchise because I really don't like part six for the reasons you just mentioned. You liked it. Like I thought it was actually like, it felt like to me it was, Oh God, I'm not going to do this. You know what? We'll, I'll have you back up. We'll do something and then we'll talk uh, like off, but I I really want to talk about your films. So the question I know everybody's dying to know the answer to, are you a football fan? Yeah, I grew up loving college football. I'm a big Alabama fan. Uh, Frank is a big Auburn fan. Ian Cunningham, our other producer on both films, is a, is a big Georgia fan. So I grew up watching slasher movies and wa- uh, loving college football. So a lot of part five was just me tapping into things that I genuinely loved as a child and that really kind of made me who I am. So that combination felt, you know, perfect and natural and it felt like a world that I would be able to understand completely, which was important going into like how quickly we were making the film. I wanted to have a solid foundation from a personal standpoint of like how we should do this. Do you get, do you, 
Do you feel a disconnect with other horror fans? Because I know, I mean, I wasn't joking for a long time. I really did think I was going to play in the NFL. Dumbest, most stupid dream ever. You're five foot eight. I, hey, Frank Gore. He was a great. You're not a, a running back. <laughs> I could have a fullback. I could do it. You would be a defensive tackle. Yeah, count me out. That's the best way to motivate me. Here's the thing. <laughs> I used to have a big disconnect. Like, I mean. I played sports all the time. And then people would be like, oh, let's watch a movie. And I'm like, oh, it's a fucking waste of time. And then, you know, we watched Monkey Shines with a group of friends one day. And I went, I really like being a host of like bad movies, which I wouldn't call them bad anymore. But I I found that a lot of people who really enjoyed horror did not like anything involving a ball, any kind of sport, any kind of organization. So do you ever, are you like kind of a pariah? I don't know if that's the right word, but. No, but I definitely get what you're saying. I think that, that, you know, it's kind of unique that two of the producers that worked on these movies are also pretty big into sports because most people that worked on the movies, that wouldn't be true of. Most people that I know in the horror community, that wouldn't be um, an accurate description of their hobbies or interests. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, like, you kind of think of it like high school, right? In high school, there were the jocks and people that were into sports, and then there were the people that were into, you know, like, they were the skater art. kids or art <laughs> kids, and, and they, they were in the band, and there was a big disconnect, um, for the most part, in those groups. But the big thing that we haven't talked about here, well, except at the beginning of the episode, because I know how to wrap this episode together <laughs> as a full package, you're welcome, is that, you know, this is a cultural thing. You know, he's he's in the South. Football is king. Yeah. Football yeah. is king in Alabama. Football is king in Mississippi. You're in California. There are more things to do. But now I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't have a long list of uh, prolific horror directors that have hailed from Alabama either. So I feel like him being a horror oh, fan. Oh, uh, friend. <laughs> couple just won an Academy Award. Okay. Yeah. That's true. And Adam Wingert's from Alabama. Yeah. Okay. Idiot. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, poll people on that because, you know, you're either from California, New York or other that those are the only three. And now you've gone back. You've gone back. to (laughs) Yeah. But like, I mean, he just mentioned how in horror movies, a big part of like character development is like, what table do you sit at? And it's like, there's not a lot of crossover. And normally in a slasher film, there is the trope of the jock. They're usually one of the first to be dispatched. Like they're not celebrated. Sure. And, you know, I'm I'm very um, happy that I was able to watch this movie with Clark because he was able to inform me on all the like inside football jokes going on. Like what is the name? Alabama. Yeah. Alabama so the third Seahawks. Yeah. And which was good because he, he combined both Alabama and Auburn. Because uh, <laughs> with the with the cheer, Ward um, yeah, that's an armor yeah. reference for sure. But see, like in what world? Like if you're at fucking some L.A. horror fest, who's gonna get that in the crowd? And that's <laughs> not a USC fan. But that's what I like. Like I'm dude. The only thing I picked up on was that the radio announcers were talking about like the Illuminati. I remember yeah. there was a reptile <laughs> reference, and I, I we thanks thanks to the digital. <laughs> Uh, format we watched it and I was able to go back and tell Clark I'm like no they're talking about yeah. like MK Ultra or something yeah but there's yeah. an MK Ultra reference there's a JFK assassination reference there's a 
Kubrick fake the moon landing reference and uh, lizard people in human skin. There may be a couple of others. So it's a that was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun to write because I realized how much that stuff when I was editing the movie, how much you would hear the announcers, even when we weren't seeing the game on screen. And I was like, well, I, I know I can write it true to football. And a lot of it is, but again, it just goes back to my weird sensibilities of like, what's the most exciting thing that they could be talking about that maybe somebody's going to notice, but most people aren't ever going to even notice in the movie. What did you use for the stock footage of the game? Those are actual uh, football games. It was extremely painful to license and find that and to explain, you know, how we were using it. But we got really lucky with the company that set it up for us that um, they went through the conference that owned the rights to it and they had to review the footage and sign off on it. And I just thought like, man, there's no way this is ever going to work. But they were very kind and, and worked it out for us. Man, I feel like you have an opportunity there. Like if you could tap into a sports company that does like merchandise, like where did you get those hockey jerseys that were from like uh, uh, Pollo Hermano? I forgot what that place was called. I I feel like if sports memorabilia and horror merchandise are like, they're just waiting to have a marriage. And if you could convince somebody, I'm like, you could tap into some football money. Oh man. That would be nice. That would be very cool. But man, I I'm gonna tell you, I really appreciate the the like love of the game in here. And I've been trying to articulate why, but I really think you've heightened the holiday. And you know, I, I like holiday horror and I like subgenres. And everybody when they talk about in particular like Christmas horror. They're always saying that everything's heightened because it's a holiday where you hang out with your family and things are supposed to go good. So when they don't, it's like a nightmare. And there's something you did where you you nested it in Halloween. Like it's not Halloween, but it's fall and we're getting really close. Mm-hmm. And you've kind of highlighted a family event that uh, as a West Coast elite, I haven't really considered a family thing. Like I used to watch football with my family and get together and, it was like a thing. We don't anymore. Yeah. But I could see how a lot of people wouldn't even recognize that as like an important moment. And it really, it comes through in your movie. Like people are getting together. There's a party. There's still debauchery, but there's also a need to watch the game, which makes you like prime target for a slasher. Like, yeah, it it all made perfect sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) We agree. Now, I don't, I'm really curious. Have you done any in-person film fest yet? Yeah, we were at, uh, we did Sidewalk Film Festival here in Birmingham, Alabama, which was great because, you know, it's an Alabama audience. So they got all, all of the, the insider references. We were at um, Panic Fest just a few weeks ago. That was our last stop. We were at a great new festival in Seattle, um, Seattle Make Believe Genre Film Festival. Um, highly recommended. I think it's going to be a, a really big fest over the next few years. It was really well done. Um, we were at a, a festival in Virginia, Indie Line, I believe. So we've done a handful of in-person fests. Yeah. Do people come up to you and tell you stories about watching football with their family? I feel like that's something that would happen. That specifically hasn't happened 
yet. They're dumb. They need to think about it. Did, did has anyone <laughs> has anyone uh, talked about you know growing up uh, in a family of slashers? <laughs> Anything like that? Way more times than you would expect. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I don't know. I I really love it because I grew up with a bunch of friends. Like I said, at a certain point, I I put the football down. I picked up my uh, knockoff Les Paul, and we kind of a West Paul. Oh yeah, West Paul. Um, we start to look at sports as almost like a toxic thing. Like, oh, people get, uh, you know, there's riots after a college football game. Like these it are can be very toxic. Yeah. And this ain't it, England. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, it's like the culture, <laughs> it's celebration. And I would argue that the uh, other. It's tribalism. I would say the other football is much more toxic. <laughs> the, the, what we call soccer out yeah. here. Where, uh, you know, if you're beheading a ref and staking it in the field, we haven't gone that far yet. We're just dealing with CTE. It's just how much does it matter? I just, you know, I, you know, I'm really bummed that I never got into college football. There's still time, there, brother. There's still time. We got a few well, more months. No, know? I mean, I did NFL because of the Niners out here. And then, you know, I was never a Raiders fan. I'm kind of into the Raiders now that they're not out here anymore. Like, I think Las Vegas is a cool fit. Yeah. But, I mean, we I don't really have a lot of options to, like, because, you know, you you kind of look at the, the teams and you're like, who am I going to back? And then what, what Berkeley's like the Ducks, right? No. What are they? <laughs> That's Oregon. That's Oregon. Berkeley's okay. the Bears. Stanford, oh, duh, yeah. <laughs> Stanford is the Cardinals. Cardinal. Yeah. Not the Cardinals. You're, you line them all up. You got a duck, a bear, and a cardinal. Now, now, <laughs> what actually won the student vote? Uh, because I believe they were originally the Stanford Indians, and they changed their name in the seventies, and they put it out to a student vote, and the students voted for the Thunder Chickens. Oh, I'm into that, <laughs> and it was shot down by the faculty and alumni. Why? And they wanted the cardinal. Is it a mythological creature? Have you ever been to Stanford? <laughs> I, I it's mean, way more of a cardinal vibe than a thunder chicken vibe. I mean, that's fair. Although um, our producer who's not in here, Oksana, she went to a high school and their mascot was like uh, the, the bull or the ram and they didn't even have a football team. Yeah. They were like, yeah, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Like they should have been the cardinal. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't. I felt like I didn't have a lot of college. Schools in Mississippi are the smallest uh, classification is one A, and you know th there could be a school of five hundred people. They're gonna have a football team. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna happen. All right, Jay. Did and you, they may be really good. Did uh, you ever play football, Jay? No, it was not for me. I, I believe in sixth grade I went out for the team. Like you didn't have to make the team. You know, at that point, like if you went through spring practice or whatever you were on the team. And I did it for like two weeks and I was like, I love watching this shit, but I don't like playing. <laughs> really? It sucks. You couldn't even like kicker. Like you were, you ever trying <laughs> to think like, oh, I, I, would have been, I would have been the worst kicker in the world. I really wanted to play basketball, but you had to make the team and I would go out for it and, and never really make it the closest I ever got. They were like, um, you got some, some potential, maybe you could be the manager and practice with the team for a year. But I was like also the worst high school student ever. So like the idea that I was even going to show up to class, let alone like <laughs> be the manager of the basketball team was a pretty far-fetched idea for 16-year-old me. Dude, my brother. <laughs> Similar problems. 
So, Jay, what's next for you, man? Um, are we going to see more out of this universe, or you got some more uh, more uh, adventures for us coming up? I'm kind of, you know, trying to figure out what makes the most sense. I want to do something a little bit more serious at some point, uh, just so mm. you know, I, I don't get uh, <laughs> I, I don't get branded as just the guy who makes comedy horror. But I'm happy to always do that. I would love to make more of these. We have ideas of what that would look like, and I think at this point, you know. Having committed to make two of them back to back, it's really going to depend on like how they're received and if people actually want to see more of them. But I hope that's the case because we have some ideas for sure. Well, Jay, how about you just be known as the guy who makes fucking cool movies? How about that? <laughs> that's and just do what you that will do. be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, also, I need um, I'm going to need a verbal contract from you right now. When I get the nobodies, uh, will you agree to come back on and talk about it? Hey, if you want to talk to me after you see the nobodies, we will definitely make that happen. <laughs> I've only heard fantastic things about it, by the way. So the bar is up in the air. That's good. Yeah, I'm really proud of that movie. Um, it does seem to be slowly finding an audience. Uh, people seem to, to be really receptive to it. It's been a slow burn. I mean, I made that movie over a handful of years, and then it was released Um 2017, 18 through trauma. And um, I think it has the potential to, to get a, a cult following. It just needs to, to get out there and hopefully trauma can find some new ways to, to, to get it out there. I think right now, you know, you can buy the DVD or you can watch it on trauma now. On trauma streaming platform. And yeah, I, which, I'm gonna, everybody signed up for that. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, Jay. When somebody was reaming me about not watching your movie. Oh, gross. I'm like, I know. I regretted saying it immediately, too. Um, when somebody was bullying me That's about better. not watching The Nobodies, I'm like, wait, it's a trauma movie? And here's the thing. We, we do a fucking indie horror podcast. We love indie horror. We love rooting for the underdog. Mm-hmm. There's something about full moon and trauma where I'm like, that's ah, a little kind of icky. I don't – aesthetically, they're not my favorite. They're a little bit too um, – they're having too much fun. I like I say, <laughs> the nobodies does not feel like a trauma movie. And I think most people that have seen it feel that way, but it makes sense that trauma would end up being the distributor for it. And I was happy that they wanted it because no one really wanted it. At one point I was told, you know, that this movie should have taken the festival circuit by storm. And it's a shame that it didn't. And I was like, well, that's really great to hear. But the reality was nobody wanted anything to do with that fucking movie. Well, for the record, I have never said anything negative about Charlie Band <laughs> or Lloyd Kaufman, and I cultivate fruitful relationships here. Yeah. Lloyd's been, been very kind to me. I have a lot of respect for him and, and Trauma, for sure. Well, here's the thing. I asked, is it uh, Trauma Production, or did, is it a distro that they picked up? And uh, who I was talking to at the time was like, oh, no, I think it was an acquisition. I think they yeah, bought that. And I went, okay, sure. I'm in. Because they do, they do buy good movies, and yeah. then yes, their yeah. brand is the brand. It's just you know, it's a little bit different than like Tromeo and Juliet. And I know everybody likes to go back, and they're like, "Ooh, James Gunn," and I'm like, "It's still fucking." It feels like a trauma film, which I think the problem is they're a little self aware. They're a little too on the nose. You're getting better with that. <laughs> I don't. The movies get. Hey, Jay, I think it's important that we talk about the nobodies in reference to these films because again, your your acknowledging the alternate reality that these films exist in there's so much potential there but also it really helps the storytelling and i 
I felt it when I watched them. And I don't know, man, I, I never thought I would say it, but I'm excited to see three more of these. You know, awesome. before, before we let you go, why did you pick to start with part five? Was it a random number or did that mean anything? I'm a big fan of Halloween five. When I was a kid, Halloween five was my favorite Halloween movie for a period of time. I'm a big defender of it. I know that most people don't feel the same way I do, but um, yeah, it was specifically Halloween five, but also, you know, the combination of Halloween four and five and Friday the 13th, six, uh, it just seemed like a, a, a safe jumping off point for us considering the limitations that we had. We weren't going to be able to, in my mind, make some, like part one at that moment. We needed to start with something that was already a little bit off the rails. Like most of those movies start to get more yeah. absurd as they go along. So that was really the, the, the thought process with part five. Man, I was completely wrong there. I thought you were um, picking part five as a reference to Friday the 13th part five, where, you know, the imposter, the new beginning, because yeah. in that movie, it's not Jason. So I thought you actually backdoored an escape route. Like if this slasher doesn't work out or the dude doesn't want to continue doing it, we can just change them. And then if anybody ever says anything, we're like, Hey, look at Friday the 13th. They did it. Yeah. Yeah. The part five star copycat movie. No, that yeah. wasn't, that was a thought that, that was, um, that's a good thought though. You could use that. <laughs> if anybody, if your yeah. actor drops out for part two, just cut this, cut this out of the interview. So I have that. Freedom. And I thought he chose part five because as an Alabama football fan, uh, he chose five for Andrew Zell. Oh man, I'm so glad you said that. I had the Andrew Zell number five jersey when I was a junior high school. He was like one of my favorite players when I was of a Of course kid. you did. Andrew Zell uh, cost me a lot of pain and heartache uh, as a young uh, I I'm a Southern Miss fan. So oh. I'm coming in from the group of five sides. So we used to play you guys a lot. And then, uh, you know, then you became a national powerhouse and didn't want to play us anymore, and that's fine, and we thank you for that because we like to remain healthy. So on that Southern Miss tip, um, a kid from my high school, I say kid, he was older than me. He was like a senior when I was a freshman, um, the starting quarterback for Hartzell. I believe his name was Chris Crumpton. He committed to South, uh, Southern Miss, and I think he played there for a year and transferred out. But, you know, when I was a kid, I thought that was so cool that we had somebody going to play for Southern Miss. Hell yeah. All right. He's now my favorite guest. <laughs> I could tell. I, I like him a lot, too. I don't know about favorite. He's got to do a little bit more. We'll see how the nobody's in. Yeah, right, right. let's, let's just see how that <laughs> plays out. I've had a lot of fun, guys. Dude, Jay, you rule, man. And uh, again, dude, thank you for including football in it. It's something that if you would have told me on paper, I would have been like, this ain't going to fucking work. Horror fans aren't going to give a shit. Um, I don't know, man. He it, built the world, man. Dude, it's really cool. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the 